This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Derek, and when I'm not working on the hook for Joe's mom's next greatest rap album, I'm stacking Benjamins, baby. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and yes, ma'am, fall is officially here. Who's ready to carve some pumpkins or crank up the bonfire pit in the corner of Joe's mom's backyard? Here to help us celebrate the start of fall, we welcome a guy who's a comedian talking about money, Paul Olinger. Plus, in our headline segment, in a time that most people have undersaved for retirement, the number of 401k and IRA millionaires have hit a record high. We'll help you get there faster. Later, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to Maddox, who's interested in using some of his savings to jump into real estate. Is that a good idea, or should he stay with index funds? We'll answer his questions and still leave time for my amazing trivia. And now, two guys who can't decide when it's the right age to stop trick-or-treating, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-J-J. I think the age is 52. It's 52. I have good information that says it's 52. There's no age to stop scaring children. Of course not. Come on. That's the fun. It's early to be planning trick-or-treating, though, isn't it? But it is early to be planning trick-or-treating, but it's not early. Actually, it feels early to be the first day of fall, doesn't it? But happy fall to you, my friend. I just bit the crap out of my lip eating a protein bar, so... I saw that. Do you like how I, I started the going for me? Like I started the podcast <laughs> immediately. I'm like, oh, he's in pain. Let's begin. Let's hit record. It's like right I've now. got blood pooling in the corner of my lip. Welcome to Emergency Podcast. My name is uh, Joe Salci. I average Joe Money on Twitter, just so you know which voice is which. Across the card table from me, writhing in pain, it's Mr. Fixing, to, fixing to get myself a fat lip. Fixing to really? We're doing that today. I might could. Well, you might you ever could. hear that one in Texarkana. <laughs> it's, it's so painful. I could. It's not bad. You get used to it. You do get used to it, but I just can't. I can't wrap my lips around having that <laughs> come out of my Mike mouth. Could. Yes, I might could thank ClearBank. See, that doesn't work for supporting Stacky Benjamins. ClearBank's changing the way entrepreneurs raise money with equity-free capital. Head to clearbank.com/sb to sign up today to get a thousand dollars of additional capital. If you're approved as a qualifying company, I like the way that they work. 
By the way, we're all about entrepreneurs today because I got to say thanks to HoneyBook for supporting Stacky Benjamins. For those of you running your own business, you're used to doing everything, but if you're struggling to get through your to-do list, HoneyBook can help. Go to honeybook.com slash SB for 50% off your first year. We'll talk more about them a little bit later, but HoneyBook with us now. Honey, going to be fantastic. We have Paul Ollinger here. I, I love it when comedians come on the show. It actually, then Tell I see- how to do it better. Well, here's the thing. You know, I post these horrible dad jokes on my Twitter stream. I've noticed. Paul actually answered one with like a ta-dum-dum. And then I wrote back to him on Twitter. I'm like, I'm like, hey, you have my permission to use that on your show. I'm like, I'm sure you're going to lead with that. And he wrote back. All he wrote back was, I'll credit you. <laughs> Meaning I'm going to throw you under the bus because that sucks so bad. Yeah, <laughs> he's got much better humor than we have. On the cover of a magazine, <laughs> it's a it's about time we got a professional comedian here. But first, we got a couple headlines, so let's get this party started. Hello, darlings, and now it's time for your favorite part of the show: our stacking Benjamin's headlines. I love it when we get headlines from our community, and uh, James said he would like to have us talk about this one. And I looked at this piece, James, and this is exactly something I think people need to hear about. This is from the Of Dollars and Data blog written by Nick Magiuli. Of course, he's the analytics manager for this little firm OG called Ritzholtz Wealth Management. I'm not sure Never if you're heard of familiar with them. Yeah. For those people that don't know Ritzholtz, they're they're kind of- Oh, a- he's that guy that was on, t- on uh, Billions. He was the analyst in Billions from CNBC. That's who he is. I finally saw an episode of Billions. An episode? Like the first episode, I hope? On a plane. I saw episode one. Okay. And? Well, I really like that one line. The one iconic line that says, this says, what's the point of having you money if you can? And then he looks at Paul Giamatti and says, unless you say you. Yes. And then he walks away. What did you think about the writing? I thought it was really good. I I think the fact that everybody's tied into each other is uh, so good. But we're off track. Let's get back. Uh, That's a good thing to talk about. This piece by Nick is the cost of waiting. Why it's better to invest conservatively now than to average in. And this is a fantastic idea because we hear about dollar cost averaging all the time. Uh, Let's begin. And what you're talking about is, so you just got a lump sum of money, a bonus, an inheritance, a house sale or something. And you're trying to toy with the idea of, should I just dump the money in and risk it going down a little bit? Or should I take this lump sum of money, my pension, for example, and put it in the market over a period of time to ease out those potential swings? That's what you're talking about. Yeah, because one of the top questions you and I always get is, but the market seems high now. Shouldn't yes. I wait? And we go, no, you should put it in right now. But if you don't want to do that, Nightfall. put it in a little bit at a time. And you and I know, well, I don't want to foreshadow, so let's do this. Earlier this year, Nick wrote a piece illustrating how it's almost always optimal to invest a large sum of money right away rather than averaging in overtime. Sitting in cash or even T-bills simply doesn't pay compared to the markets because most markets have a long-term positive trend. Despite the mathematical soundness of my arguments, many people told me privately they still felt wary about investing lots of money at once because they feared a market crash. My recommended solution to address this fear was simple. Go all in, but do it in a more conservative portfolio, he writes. So if you truly want to be invested in 100% stocks, but you're worried about a market crash, 
it'd be better to put in now and do an 80-20 stock bond portfolio instead of dollar cost averaging into an all stock portfolio over time. But this recommendation got me thinking, how conservatively can you invest a lump sum and still outperform dollar cost averaging where you put a little bit in? Could a lump sum investment into, let's say, a 60-40 portfolio beat dollar cost averaging into an all stock portfolio over two years? Or what about lump sum into 40-60 or, God forbid, an all bond portfolio? Where is the limit? And he says in his prior post on lump sum investing, he kept the portfolios constant, but varied the buying period to demonstrate that a longer buying period leads to more underperformance. In this post, I'm going to keep the buying period constant, 24 months, but will vary the conservativeness of the portfolio. That allowed me to see how a lump sum investment in a more conservative portfolio compares to dollar cost averaging into all stock. And here's what his results show. We'll just cut to the chase. His results, OG, show that any stock bond portfolio combination would have on average outperformed 24 months of dollar cost averaging into all stocks. So if you want to get into all stocks, but you don't want to do it now, the advice that I've even given people in the past of dollar cost averaging, not as good historically as just say, listen, start off in all bonds and then switch from bonds to stocks over two years. Hmm. Makes sense though. I wonder over what periods of time did he do it over a whole bunch of periods? No, he said he kept it at 24 months. That was No, I'm it. not talking about 24 months. I mean, oh. like, did he take the 24 months, 1998 to 2000 and then... 2001 to 2003. And I'm looking at his chart and he goes back uh, to 1960. Oh, okay. So he has some reasonable data points. In. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. when <laughs> He did a little bit of research. He didn't cherry pick. Well, yeah. Like you see this, uh, there was a popular blogger recently who figured out she couldn't beat the stock market with active investments the last seven years. So she gave up. That's not a long enough time. Yeah. We're in this. Well, that's a long time frame if you're 23. Well, but we're in this upturn market. I mean, we're in one market cycle and she gives up and goes, nope, I proved that it can't be done. No, you didn't. But if you go back to 1960, that's some data. Probably a better, better chance. Yeah. So get over yourself, basically. Jump in. Be okay with the fact that it might not be okay in the short run. That's the biggest thing that people are concerned with, right? So you get this pension lump sum. Let's say, and I know in his example, he used two and a half million, which also was a really funny way to use that. Like he could have used 240,000. Like (laughs) he's like, let's assume you're lump summing 2.4 million. And like all the comments are like, uh, let's assume I'm lump summing 24,000 more like, but, um, that's the thing. So you've got your pension. Right, you just retired. You took the lump sum option. You've got five hundred thousand in cash in your IRA, and you're worried that if you put it in today, you're going to be the guy that they make an example of on CNBC. Like, look at this dummy. He put all his money in the day before on September twenty second, the right before the market started to went you know go down. But if you've looked at your financial plan correctly and said, okay, all of this money except for this small portion of it, I need three years from now or five years from now, 10 years from now, 30 years from now. And I do need some of it tomorrow, but but hopefully a relatively small amount of that lump sum. Then you can be okay with the fact that, hey, you know what? I put the money in. If it goes down 20%, if I happen to be unlucky, and that's the that's the exact timing that I got, it's still okay in the long run. It just took you a little bit longer to get there. And I think the better thing to do, OG, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, is not think about 20%, but actually come up with that number. So if it's $2 million, right, to say, 
I could be down $400,000. How does that feel? Because that feels, when you say 20%, I go, yeah. You say 400,000 bucks. Yeah. People tend to feel a little differently. That's right. And I think in my uneducated opinion about this, unscientifically researched opinion, I should say, I think that people think about dollars in the in the context in which they make them. For example, if you are somebody that earns $100,000 a year and your portfolio swings 80,000, in your mind, you equate that to that's eh, kind of like 3 quarters of a year of work. You know, you're like, "Ah, eh, it's like yeah, now until Easter." You know what I mean? Like we give ourselves time frames. And if you make $100,000 a year, you have $2 million and it goes down 400000 Now you don't think about that as 20%. You're right. You think about like, oh my God, I just lost four years of work. Like four years of work and savings and all that sort of stuff down the drain. But that's not true either. You know, you just have to understand the long-term nature of this. I like this article dovetailing really nicely into the Kitz's piece from probably six or eight months ago where he he did a, an experiment about the sequence of returns, which everybody is so freaked out about, you know, that gets a lot of airplay, especially in the early retirement community of, well, yeah, but if you get the sequence of returns wrong, you know, you're the guy that retires September 1st, 2008. Woe is you. And that's true if you're taking too much money out of your portfolio or if you're not prepared for it in terms of having a reserve for those next several years of withdrawals. But in Kitz's article, which proves this point as well, you actually get better returns over a short period of time, which increase your portfolio. You get that next doubling. Like you talk about all the time, the last double is the most important. You get that next double faster, which gets you past that kind of cautionary zone. Yeah. I mean, think of it this way. If you retire with a million dollars and you're trying to get 40 grand a year out, the ubiquitous 4% rule, and your portfolio goes down to 800,000, you're starting to stress a little bit. But if instead you went from a million because you were conservative, right? You said, I'm going to be conservative with this million because I can't afford for it to go down. And instead, you happen to also get lucky, but more likely get lucky because the market has a long-term trend up. Your million turns into two million and your spending remains constant. You're out of that, that, that struggle zone. Like it doesn't matter from that. But you're, now you're at two million. You're like, I don't care if it go down by half and I'm still good. And I think what that isn't that funny because well, even when you say that, just to stop you there, I feel like to some degree we have a little bit of a gambler mentality. I mean, in your head, you're like, I'm playing with the house's money now. Yeah, I think that comes into into play. But more specifically around the planning components of it, what I think happens is it allows you to do greater and greater things. Sure, it's really frustrating when I see somebody that gets to retirement and then is adamant about being ultra conservative relative to timeframes. Cause it's like, okay, I'm 60. I got a million bucks. I need it to last. It's like, no, you need this money to double every eight or nine years is what you need it to do. Because if you do this right, you're going to be able to fix a children's hospital or, you know, help your church out or your kids or grandkids or whatever is important to you, because it's not a million dollars. It's a million dollars doubling five times before you die. And it's $30 million. Yeah, and few- as long as you keep your spending approximately commensurate with the portfolio, you're going to be so far above that, you know, that, that plan line. I can't even say glide slope, but you know what I mean? The, <laughs> the slope to which the plan is projected on, you'll be so far above it that you can unlock so many other opportunities. So as you're going to like higher and higher altitudes, as your portfolio is growing further and further up, <laughs> I love you trying so hard. I'll give you a glide slope. Does make sense in that Two case. Point. Yeah. 
But all I see is a green diamond. And anybody who flies knows what I'm talking about. Or a purple one. All I see when I fly is a ticket with a destination on it. <laughs> all you see when you fly is two margaritas and a <laughs> pair of free headphones. <laughs> and and some idiot who's decided... And like toes sitting right in between you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> who wrote that? That, that, that they had a foot. Was that Bobby Rebel who wrote it's, it's happened a lot. Yeah. Somebody put their foot up like right. Oh, yeah. Disgusting. Our second headline comes to us from Market Watch. Uh, here's some. We are all about good news. We did some good news about the number of people that are saving. Remember that Fidelity study and the number of people who are saving a lot of money into their retirement plans. How about this one? This piece is by Katie Hill. What retirement crisis number of 401k and IRA millionaires hits a record high? Katie writes, there's more millionaires next door, despite the fact most people are under safe for retirement. A recent study out from Fidelity shows the retirement savings picture isn't quite as grim as you may think. The number of people with a million dollars or more in their 401k increased to a record 196,000 up from 180,000 at the end of Q1, while the number of IRA millionaires increased to 179,700, also a record high, and an increase from 168,100 last quarter, the report revealed. That has to be at Fidelity because, and Katie doesn't write where it is, but that was the first thing that I thought. I'm like, there's what, 360 million people in the United States or something around that number? Mm -hmm. We got 179,000 people that that did it. That's a blip. I know the millionaire number is closer to like 15 million or something. But I think that um, a lot of that is in closely held business assets. Yeah. It could be in, I mean, part of it could be real estate net worth as well, yeah. you know, just yeah. even houses they live in. Uh, so this, this number might be right. What's more, employee savings rates hit a record high. We talked about that, that before. 29% of Americans had increased their retirement savings contributions from the, from the prior year. So great news. OG, more millionaires out there. More people. More money, more problems. Saving a bunch of money. By the way, we had that challenge last week asking people to save more money. And we said that we were going to tell five, five people that they were getting t-shirts. So a big five people were getting t-shirts because they took our challenge to go raise their retirement savings. So a big congratulations. And we'll send letters to all these people, but to Andrew... I probably should have picked these out of the hat beforehand instead of trying to do it live here Uh, to Richard, to Christopher, to Nicholas. I feel like you're just making up these names. Uh, I totally am. It's (laughs) random. Like uh, top 10 boys names and girls names, 1970 to present. Uh, Nicholas, uh, Christopher, Andrew. And to Isaac. And what the heck? You know what? Let's give out three more just for fun. We had so many people that did this. OG, this is super exciting. I love the number of people that did this. Let's also give one to, uh, how about Mike, Nathan and Bob? So, uh, all eight of you crazy people. So congratulations to everybody. Even if you didn't get a t-shirt, OG, the t-shirt, you can buy a ton of t-shirts if you just bump up your savings a little bit. And by the way, most people just showed me or told me that they bumped it up 1%. I mean, how, how great is that? Just 1% every six months. Before you know it, you get to 50 and you saved 100% of your income. 
You're like, we, we can't eat anymore. The good news is that my savings rate is 75%. The bad news is I have 40000 in credit card debt. But it's okay because I'm going to make it all up later. Yep. It's amazing. Inter- interest rate arbitrage. They're all 0% cards. <laughs> Just kidding, people. Don't do that. That was a joke. So congratulations to all those people. They're going to have a bunch more capital. A bunch more capital. And by the way, if you're running a business and you need more capital, got to say a big thanks to ClearBank for supporting our podcast. See how I did that? Mm-hmm. Ninja. Ninja. Like Segway. Probably not overstating it to say that was a ninja-like segue. Uh, ClearBank is changing the way entrepreneurs raise money with equity-free capital. You know how these venture capitalists come in, OG, like, hey, I'll help you out, but here's the deal. I want like 40% of your business. We've all seen Shark Tank. We know how it works. Mm -hmm. ClearBank does not work that way. If you're looking for a better way to fund your business, ClearBank provides entrepreneurs capital to grow. They believe that founders shouldn't have to give up a piece of the company or tap into their personal resources to raise money. How many times have we interviewed entrepreneurs, people with a new idea here, and they mortgage themselves to the hilt? Like I remember just reading Inc. or Success or uh, Entrepreneur Magazine, and it's always entrepreneur after entrepreneur. Like, yeah, I maxed out every single credit card I had. I started off with loans for my 401k, but then I just ripped the money out and paid the monster penalty to do that and just sank themselves. You don't have to do that. So if you're looking for a better way, ClearBank can fund you anywhere from 10,000 to 10 million in a single day. Just fill out their 20 minute term sheet to get started. They funded thousands of entrepreneurs. They're on track this year. Listen to this OG to fund over a billion dollars in 2019. Go to clearbank.com slash SB to sign up today and you'll get a thousand dollars of additional capital. If you're approved as a qualifying company, bank is spelled with a C at the end. So that's C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C dot com slash S-B. Stop pitching. Get back to what you love growing your business. Think what I love is growing my nest egg. And that might be the first takeaway, OG. Lots of millionaires. And the way you get there faster, stop dollar cost averaging in. And instead, if you're really worried, lump sum into maybe a little bit more conservative portfolio and then go to your more optimal all stock over a period of time. Smart idea. Still not optimal, but much, much better. Paul Ollinger upstairs talking to mom. He is a nationally touring stand-up comedian. Dude's so funny. Was just here in Detroit a year ago. And uh, when he comes down to the basement, I have queued up uh, a piece he did from Ridley's Comedy Club here in Royal Oak, not far from where I'm at right now. Uh, He's an Ivy League MBA, though. And listen to this. He's a former Facebook employee. He was an early Facebook employee. uh, Born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, where he lives now. He had to borrow $100,000 to get an MBA from Dartmouth's Tuck School. However, he got more out of that experience than just a degree. During a business school talent show, he performed stand-up for the first time, and bam, he was hooked. He's just started a podcast, which is why I wanted to invite him on. It's called Crazy Money, and uh, anybody who wants to talk about humor and money and put those two things together, perfect guest for us, OG. Let's say hi to... Paul Ollinger. 
And walking down the stairs to the basement, it's our good new friend, Paul Ollinger. How are you, man? Hey, I'm happy to be here. Your mom's muffins are the best. I don't know what you're referring. What are you referring to? The hot, tasty muffins that she just took out of the oven. Gotcha. Okay. I thought you were saying something about my mom and I was going to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Hold on. I'm not that kind of guy. No. Well, I want to talk about what kind of guy you are now that we've, we've finally got you here. You've had a career that has had so many twists and turns. Apparently, and correct me if I got this wrong, but you were at Facebook. So were you the guy who was in charge of like influencing elections? Was that your job? <laughs> I was the assistant to uh, the influencer. No, I, I actually left Facebook in 2011. So I had nothing to do with any of that. Yeah, you can. you will deny it all day long. Well, I don't want to bash on Facebook. It was very sure. good to me. And it, it's a very long story, uh, a two hour conversation that you could dive into. But suffice to say, I left long before right. that was ever an issue. I was I was actually just kidding about that. But the uh, but, but let's but, not start this way. This is going wrong already. <laughs> I can tell <laughs> going back and forth already. You talk about my mom. I talk about your job. That's right. There we go. Let's start it off. Oh, I wish I wish I had a job. <laughs> my God, do I wish I had a job. Well, I want to talk about that too, but I think to kick off our discussion, I want to go to your awesome podcast, Crazy Money. And uh, several weeks ago, you interviewed Samantha Berry, the editor-in-chief of Glamour, and talking about twists and turns. Let's play a little clip of your interview with her. Here she is, uh, you and Samantha Berry. And then your early career took you to some pretty interesting places. I know. Right off the bat. I know. Well, I started in radio in Ireland, which is like overnights and doing the news for four people that are listening at 4 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> so very proud of that. And also terrified because it was my first job. Yeah. And being one of two people in the newsroom overnight, because you do those unsociable hours. Worked at RTE, which is like the Irish equivalent to BBC. It's mm-hmm. a state broadcaster. Went to another radio station, graduated to daytime hours. and um, <laughs> That must have been quite know, liberating. It was, it was great. Actually, when I went from RTE, and I talked about this a little bit earlier to a group of students that came to see me. When I went from my first job to my second job, I actually took a pay cut because I wanted to do journalism I was more proud of. When I was in my first job, I was one of the younger women and I was getting the fluffy kicker stories and I would be sent to the science fair to talk to the kids. And I really wanted to do some meteor stories. So in order to do them, I think... I love this idea, Paul, that she knew where she wanted to go. And you must have been at Facebook. I mean, now that you're a, a, a comedian... Uh, mm-hmm. How do you go from Facebook to comedian? You saw, you know, you talked to Samantha about all of her twists and turns. You start by making some very bad decisions. Perfect. That's what, that's really, you make the ultimate bad decision, which is I'm going to quit my job, my very stable, my very lucrative, uh, my very uh, fulfilling job and decide you're going to chase your dream. Was it fulfilling and, though? Well, it was very fulfilling, very challenging. It was also very stressful. And one of the reasons I left was because I was just tired. I was exhausted. I needed, I think I needed a, a sabbatical. And yet one of the things that kind of always dogged me was that I've had this dream of being a stand-up comedian since I was in business school in 1995. I went to business school because I wanted to make more money through a better job. And I told jokes at a talent show and I'm like, oh, holy crap, what did I learn at business school that I want to be a comedian? That's the last thing you want to do when you borrow a hundred grand to get an Ivy League diploma, right? And that was in 1997 dollars. Okay. So I came out, I paid off my debt. I worked at have working in the digital media business at Yahoo. I took two years and did stand-up comedy in L.A. Then I got engaged, and I thought, 
four out of five women prefer employed husbands. And so I decided to become one of them again. And I got a little job at this company called Facebook. That's a scientific study, by the way, right? Four out of five. Yes. I believe it's the Trident Institute of Chewing Gum <laughs> Studies. Uh, of, in, of, the o, in, of, in the OECD. Of, of women looking for husbands, four out of five yes, would of, prefer you're employed. Prefer that you're employed. So I went back to work and I needed a job and I got a job at this tiny company. Well, not tiny, but 250 person company called Facebook. And I had no idea what I had stepped into. You know, literally, I told my wife, someday this company will be as big as MySpace. That's what I told her because I'm a genius. I'm a visionary. <laughs> and and then I rode the rocket ship for four and a half years and it was wild and insane. And the company grew like you wouldn't believe. But I, I was asked to move up to headquarters and I decided that I, if I was going to move, having moved a lot for the first 20 years of my career, I said I was going to go home and I live in Atlanta now with my wife and two kids. Wow. And, and that move, I can just imagine having that talk with your spouse about this thing is obviously this hugely profitable place to be. You mm -hmm. must have been making money hand over fist, I would imagine. How do you, how do you get away from that? I mean, how do you have that conversation? Well, you marry the right person is the first a good place to start. And when you have the conversation, I mean, what happened was, you know, starting in 1997, I got stock options when the company was valued at, you know, a very, very low relative to where it ended up going public. Sure. Even with the disastrous IPO, you know, uh, the stock was, was highly, highly lucrative. And I said, you know, we have this much money or thereabouts do we want to live a life of me working like I've worked the last five years for the next five years and probably working even harder? Or do we want to go take it a little easier? Uh, we were living in Los Angeles at the time and I showed her what our real estate dollar bought us in Los Angeles versus what it bought us in Atlanta. Uh, and uh, she found that to be a compelling argument. Yeah, I cheated. I cheated. <laughs> in other words, I used Zillow pornography to convince my <laughs> wife to move back to my hometown. But different than pornography, which is completely fantasy. Th th these were some real numbers, though. I mean, there was a big difference between the two. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, we, I don't know, cost per square foot in, in L.A. then in 2011 was probably a thousand dollars. Now it's probably double that or maybe 800, depending upon your neighborhood costs in Atlanta and the nicest neighborhoods back then were like 300 and maybe 450 today. You're in the vortex though. If you're in LA and Atlanta, not so much. Have you found that it slowed your comedy career down at all? Well, recall that I hadn't done comedy for four and a half years while I was working at Facebook or, or maybe I didn't say that, but I yeah. didn't, I, I was focused very, very much on being successful at the job that I was dedicating myself to. And so when I moved back to Atlanta and left Facebook, I didn't even have a plan. And that was the biggest mistake I made was leaving a great situation without knowing exactly what I wanted to go do. And it took me almost three years to admit to myself that what I really wanted to do was stand up. And the reason I hadn't done it again was because I was scared. I was scared of failing. I was scared of uh, starting over and going from a high status job to being a low status person in this new industry. And coincidentally, being in Atlanta was actually a really great place to relaunch a stand-up career because, you know, if you're in LA and you actually do get the opportunity before you're ready to be seen by people from TV and movies and such, they're going to remember the first time they saw you. And if you suck, they're going to be like, that guy sucks. And that's going to be your brand until somebody else proves to them diff something different. So coming back to Atlanta where there's actually a great thriving stand-up scene, a lot of bars, good clubs, and uh, I'm going to do a show at a bar tonight out in this, a suburb of Atlanta. 
nobody's going to be there that if I fail, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get a sitcom tonight if I kill right. and I'm not going to ruin my career if I don't. The standard, so, the standard deviation, Paul, on your gig is much, much less is what you're saying to put it in financial nerd speak. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. It was that bar X bar. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. N equals, I don't know, whatever. Right. I, you know, the, 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 the batteries in my financial calculator have been dead since May of 1997. I mean, that's when I graduated. I couldn't price a bond if you gave me the price of the bond and a Goldman Sachs intern. I mean, like I couldn't, I couldn't even come close. You just hire the intern to do it or have the intern do it for you. That's, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. About comedy. When you started in comedy, obviously you clearly have to think you have a talent for it to even get into it. But I think there's some, Mm -hmm. there's some studying that you did. There's some, I don't know, do you do improv classes? Do you like, how do you begin to go from, I think this is a fun thing to do to this is my career. This has been a 16, 18 year process for me. So I took my first stand up class shortly after nine 11, when a friend of mine said, Hey, you, you know, you've always wanted to do this. And if this event 9-11 teaches us anything, it's that life is short and we should get after what we want to get after. And so I took a comedy class. I was living in Los Angeles the very first time I did that. I took a comedy class five blocks from my apartment and that's how I got started. And, and so a comedy class and all comedy clubs have them because it's a great way for them to drive income when the, when the club is dark. It's a great safe environment to start learning how to write jokes and get up in front of other people who are expecting you to fail so that when you actually do fail or only fail a little bit, it feels like a victory. And that's, that's how I got started. That was, but that was like 18 years ago. How were those early gigs? Well, the problem with that environment is when you do well in a very safe environment, you think I'm awesome at this. You know, like I used to do gigs at Yahoo. I I would tell jokes in front of our entire sales conference, sales jokes, jokes about marketing clients and stuff and jokes about the executives. And I would destroy. And then I'd be like, I'm such a good comedian. I need to go do this full time. And then I get out to L.A. and I'm telling jokes in front of, you know, the crowds in Riverside, California, who don't know me. And they're like, you're an idiot. You know, I'm sitting here telling these clever business jokes and they're like, you're a moron. You're not funny. And all of a sudden you realize, you go, oh, I have to find something to be able to relate to almost every audience if I want to be successful as, as a stand-up comedian. And uh, banner ad jokes aren't that topic. I've heard that even five minutes of comedy, like when you're first starting out, that it's so diff- so much more difficult than the average person thinks because they watch a comedy special on Netflix or whatever. Five minutes of comedy is brutally hard. Is that true? Well, coming up with five minutes that are worth a a damn are, you know, I mean, like it's like a lot of things we watch experts, you watch Lance Armstrong win the tour de France. Okay. Bad example. You watch anybody (laughs) on a bike, win a, win a, uh, you know, you watch an expert do something and then you go to spin class and you get the highest score in spin class. And you think I should try out for the, you know, USPS cycling team. And that's a 20 year old reference. I don't know who's sponsoring the USPS cycling team. Now, if it's called the USPS cycling team, still, it might be the USPS, but you know what I'm talking about? We think we watch other people as we watch experts do something and we do it somewhat functionally in our kitchen. And then we think that we should open a restaurant and it's just not the way things work. It's, it's, it's to become proficient at a new skill is a 10,000 hour decade long task. So when you left Facebook, you didn't even know that you were going to go full-time with comedy then. I left to stop working. I didn't leave to go pursue something. And when I stopped working, I ran 
head wall into a concrete wall of what the hell do I do with myself? Uh, what's the point of life and why are we here? Cause you're, you're a young guy at this point. I was 42. Yeah. Yeah. 42. And where am I going next is quite an existential crisis. I would think. Yeah. And it's look, I also want to, you know, the caveat here is that I was wildly, wildly fortunate to have the optionality to do whatever I wanted to do. Right. But this is what I worry about this obsession with the fire movement. I'm a hundred percent behind financial independence. It's something this country needs a lot more of, but the whole obsession with retiring early, it makes no sense. Like retire early. And then what, what are you going to do before you go out there and do everything you can to quit your job? You should spend a lot of time, like years and months and hundreds of hours thinking through what kind of life do I want to lead? What would I do if I truly didn't have to work? There's I, a reason why, why lottery winners go berserk. And that's because we're not conditioned to make our own decisions without a boss telling us how to do that. When did you decide going on the road then full time and really doing what you do now that that was going to be the path? Well, after I left Facebook, I actually... I tried to get going in comedy about a year and a half later and I did a couple of open mics and one I did, I did an open mic at a bar and I bombed so bad that on my way home I was, I thought I got to get a job. This is stupid. This is, this is, this is a fool's errand. And I didn't realize that bombing, you know, even how though I had done it for a few years, I had done comedy in such safe spaces and in such good clubs with good crowds. I didn't realize that bombing is a really important part of the creative process and on the way home, I gave in to my, hey, live a safe life instincts. And I, lit I literally went back to work for a year as the president of a software company. And after that year, realizing that I didn't feel like I was doing the work I was supposed to be doing, I said, I'm going to quit and I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to I'm going to write every day and I'm going to start going back out there and I'm going to give it my full swing. And that was five years ago. And I'm just now starting to play the kind of rooms that I want to be able to play. Why is bombing such an important part of the process? Just so you, you fix what's wrong with the set. Like instead of being 70% good, you make the necessary leap to whatever the next level is. Well, that's, yeah, that's it. I mean, if you only go in and do the material that you know works over and over again, there's no growth. Yes. I mean, and, and, and you'll get bored with it and the audiences will get bored with it. And so at a certain point, if you want to, if you want to build to an hour to two hours of material, you have to take risks and trying new things out. And what happens when you try new things is that nine out of 10 of them don't work. And so you have to have the confidence to walk up there and say something that you think is funny and be willing for other people to not share your opinion of your material. And it's just, it's the hardest thing to do. It really is the hardest thing to do, especially if you're the kind of person that really comforts himself with the kind of success that comes in the work environment in a, with a set of rules and set of guidelines and a manager telling you, hey, here's how you're going to be evaluated this quarter. And if you hit these metrics, you're a good boy. Right. I want to show you exactly what uh, Paul's talking about. This is Paul in my backyard, actually, at a comedy club called Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle back in 2018. Like you're not broke. Here's how life works when you're not broke. Every time the phone rings, you can answer it, right? Nobody's looking for money, right? When you're not broke and you get a bill, you know what you do? You pay it. It's, it's like magic. It's, the best part of being not broke is calling Capital One and telling them to take their 23% annual percentage rate credit card and shove it up Samuel L. Jackson's ass.
that's a nice place to be in. Yeah, it is a good, but, but that's the pro, you know, I have been in that place. I've been in the bill collectors calling me fortunately not for too long. And it was a long time ago when I was young and out of college and got myself in some credit card debt. And I remember that pain and the powerlessness of waking up and realizing that you had no idea how you're going to get back in order. And so there was pain in that, but, but I think the problem with us in America is that we don't, we, we fetishize being rich. We don't fetishize being not broke. And that's the point of that bit is that not broke is freedom. Not broke is, uh, is being your own person. And we think, well, no, what's really great about money is having a Porsche or a Ferrari or showing people my Rolex. And it's like, those things are great and nice, but it doesn't even come close to the palpable feeling when you pay off your credit cards or your student loans. The, the richest I've ever felt is the day I paid off my student loans. Is that why that bit's so funny is the truth in it? I think that truth is the ultimate goal for comedians. Like if you're not telling the truth, and in fact, I think about why I do this. And one of the reasons is because I love attention because I didn't get enough when I was a kid. (laughs) Um, I'm one of six kids. And so I only had 17% of my parents' attention on a good day. But the other reason is because I want to tell the truth. I want to say what's on my mind. And when I'm at my best, when any comedian is at his or her best, it's when they are saying a truth that other people aren't hearing in the rest of their lives because the comedy club is sacred in that sense. You can say things from the stage. You can't say what you really feel at work. Yeah. You know, you, you can't often say what's on your mind to your spouse. And so the club is a sacred space where you can say things that are true. And the biggest laughs come when people resonate, when they resonate with people in the audience and they go, I feel that way too. I feel understood. That resonated, well, that bit right there resonated so much with me, Paul, because longtime listeners to our show know what a complete moron I was with money back in the day. And, (laughs) and I would seriously, I would tell bill collectors that I died and, and I knew they'd catch on sooner or later. I'd say, no, he's dead. And, and, you know, so they'd hang up and then two weeks later, they're back after me, but I bought myself a couple of weeks then that so much resonated. And obviously, you know, Samuel L. Jackson, he's making a little bit of money on those ads. Yeah, no, I mean, he's making millions of dollars. And if they called and offered me that same contract, I'd probably take it. But I wouldn't feel good about it, Joe. <laughs> you'd, feel, you'd go, okay. All, all I right. would I would know that I was prostituting myself to, <laughs> to sell a product that's not good for people. I mean, you know. So as if, as if being on a tour all the time is not enough, getting the attention you didn't get from mom is, is not enough. You decided my mom, your mom, on the other hand. (laughs) So you had to have a podcast then. And by the way, just to show people the uh, professionalism in your podcast, let's play the open of your most recent crazy money uh, episode. This is with uh, Dr. Uh, Brad Klontz, who's fantastic, by the way. He is great. Hello, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is Paul Ollinger, your host. I'm grateful to you for sharing part of your day with me. This is about the fourth or fifth time I've done this introduction. The way I'm going to do it differently this time is I'm actually going to press record on the recorder because that really, you know, it makes all the difference. The talking to the microphone part is is probably harder, uh, but the remembering to press record, while not terribly difficult, is way more important. You're like on 301 already. The show is not that old (laughs) and you're already learning how to press record before you talk. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a nuanced, nuanced tactic, but I find it to be very helpful. (laughs) I, I can't, I would like to say I've never done that before, but I hate it when I have some guest on and I'm partway through this exciting conversation 
And I look over to the left and the little red light is blinking, which means that I'm on hold waiting to hit record. <laughs> and I go, oh, shit. <laughs> I'm interviewing a, uh, uh, in two weeks, I'm going to Princeton, New Jersey to interview Sir Angus Deaton, who is a Nobel prize winning economist who did the study that found that happiness, marginal happiness is, uh, maximized at about $75,000 a year in income. You've all, we've all read this sure. statistic. I'm just petrified of the, the, the amount of work I put in to reading his books and to getting up there and to securing the interview, I'm petrified that I'm going to be like, I'm going to like drop my recorder in the urinal after I get that interview. You know, if I even remember to press record, it's, it's the logistics of this, of this, uh, this craft we have here that are so tricky, the darn hobgoblins. It is, there's, and there's so many, uh, but what made you get into podcasting? Well, so I've been writing this book about my experience leaving work and, all the mistakes I made, the assumptions that I made about what it would be like to have money, and then what actually happened. And I've been, I've been working on trying to explore why I didn't feel as happy as I thought I would after I made all this money and retired. I thought, well, you know what? If this works in print, it would work equally well in, in a platform that I can control a little bit more. And so I thought, well, why not try to bring some guests in who have an interesting point of view on money? And by the way, a hundred percent of people have a relationship with money, whether or not they're aware of it. So I thought, why not bring in some interesting people from Dr. Drew Pinsky to Adam Carolla to the New York Times, Ron Lieber to my 92 year old dad. And let's try to learn about money together, not about how to make it or how to invest it, but like what it means to us and how it affects our decision making in life. Well, I love, obviously, people know that listen to this show that we try to do comedy based on the reviews. Sometimes we're <laughs> you guys successful. Are legitimately funny. You are Sometimes, legitimately funny. every once in a while, we hit it, but we're still trying to get up there with you, man. But the but I think that uh, that there's not enough of that storytelling and comedy beats money because as you as I'm sure you're seeing early on here. People just don't want to talk about money like they don't that they've got this brick wall like, yeah, no, 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 no. That sounds like an important discussion. And the less we make it an important discussion, the better it gets, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes back to comedy, like the stuff that the art of comedy is is optimized when you're taking a very difficult topic to talk about and you make it relatable to people. And I'm still working on how to make my experience as somebody who made money relatable to people in the audience without them thinking you're a, you're an a-hole or whatever. But like I had these assumptions that were wrong and I want to talk about them. You know, I never thought I'd hear my seven year old son come home and ask us, Hey dad, when are we going to get a chef like his friends had? And then, you know, I go like <laughs> chef, what are you talking about? Like I thought I was, I thought I was doing pretty good till my fr my son came home from his really rich friend's house. So like everybody's got the experience of somebody having more money than they do, but they don't think about the person that has less than them. And I think there's, there's an awful lot of rich material to explore there. Well, and uh, back to Dr. Brad Klontz here, he talks about problems that a lot of people wish they had as billionaires. And I want to play just a little bit of this uh, interview with Dr. Brad Klontz. You say that billionaires have a distorted feedback loop because in many cases they're surrounded by people who don't challenge their thinking. Do they have a harder time with trusts than people of more normal means? I do believe that they do. And for very good reason. 
the feedback loop is that, you know, I think it, it happens with a lot of people who have high status. So, I mean, mm-hmm. we can talk about that as being money or fame, um, where you, they tend to surround themselves or people want to sort of feed into their ego or make them happy, basically. They want to be liked by them. And so they're, they're less likely to get honest feedback from people, which is really damaging, frankly. You can really easily have a distorted version of yourself. All of us can if nobody gives you any feedback and no one tells you, hey, look, that's that's a I love this idea of feedback, Paul, not just for for billionaires. And I can totally see his point. I'm sure you can, too, about how Mm. difficult it is if people are sitting around you thinking, well, do you like me for my money? Is this really what you think about me? I feel like having these Gordon Ramsay's in my corner is a is a good idea. How important have coaches been and people to give you feedback been in your career? Tremendously so. You know, there's there's all along the way. I'm going back to you know, high school, even there's been great people in my life. Uh, you know, my parents are two of the best parents I, anybody could have ever asked for. I won the genetic lottery, not the inheritance lottery necessarily, but genetic lottery in the sense that I had parents that loved me and care for me and made sure I got an education. And I've just been surrounded by positive adults through high school and, and in college, I had good mentors. And then at work, when I was at Facebook, I had a tremendous guy named Al Bot who helped me see the forest for the trees and and it's been, um, it's, 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 I, I've just been lucky to have, to be surrounded by good people my entire but, career. But did you go out and seek out somebody like Al or did Al find you? You know, the company was wise that it helped some of its uh, senior managers try to think through, uh, how to handle the tremendous growth at the time. And, and he was brought in to help us do that. And then in comedy now, do you, are you part of a comedic mastermind? I mean, I could just imagine a comedy room where you guys are, are testing material back and forth. Well, I mean, you kind of do that just by going to all the shows. I mean, you do hundreds of shows every year and you see the same people and you build relationships with, you find people that you can trust. I've actually pitched somewhat half-heartedly to a few friends trying to do like a YPO model for comedy where we would all sit down and, you know, give each other really candid feedback. And it, the, the, the responses to the responses to my idea were kind of like a couple of people were like, eh, I don't care about your opinion. Thanks. <laughs> Great. Which, which like, Oh, but this is supposed to be collaborative. Yeah. You know, and they're like, ah, I'm not interested in giving you feedback either. Well, and it's already collaborative. It's you and the audience. And if you can help somebody reach their audience, I don't, I don't know. One of the interesting things about comedy it is it is neither good nor bad. It just is what it is, is that you get immediate feedback. Yeah. Sometimes it feels really good. And sometimes it doesn't feel really good, but not all the feedback that feels good is as helpful as the feedback that feels bad. Because, you know, if you're just getting laughs every single time, you're probably not taking enough chances and bombing enough. The podcast is called Crazy Money with Paul Ollinger. Also, they can follow you. Our fans can follow you, by the way, when you're going around the country. What's your, is it paulollinger.com? No, they can literally follow me. They can come to the airport and, you know, like, uh, no, it's uh, at... <laughs> Paul underscore Ollinger, which is O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R, the uh, German spelling of Ollinger, not those of a-hole Luxembourgian spelling of Ollinger. The, the sketchy side of the family. That's right. right. That's right. And I know you also have a comedy EP that's out. Yeah, an EP is is uh, it's an album for people that don't have enough material to fill a whole album. So it's I, sort of like you know, it's well, skinny cow for comedy. But wait a minute, you were at Facebook, and and you know the power of advertising. Put it from the customer's mm-hmm. perspective, Paul. Stick oh, with the right. customers. Sorry, the, it's for people the with ADD. They don't need the full what's, album. 
what's in it for you? That's right. For, for the busy professional who has both high standards and not a lot of time, I've prepared a 27-minute custom version of my comedy course. There you go. Much it's better. only forty nine ninety nine in three monthly payments. Actually, it's quite cheap. You can find it for free on Spotify. It's called Alive on the Upper West Side. Uh, it was recorded at the West Side Comedy Club in New York City. It's also on iTunes, but you have to pay for it there. Follow your heart. Just listen to it and share it with your friends. Maybe send me an email. Tell me you love me. That's awesome because he needs it because he only got one sixth of his mom's love or whatever the that's, number was. Right. That's right. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us, Paul. Hey, this has been awesome. I really enjoyed being a part of your show. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and welcome to the part of the show you've been waiting for. No, not the free lemon squares. It's my trivia. So, uh, you know, as longtime listeners know, I am so brilliant that normally I got got no problem coming up with most of the top of the line trivia questions. But with today being the start of fall, even I have to admit, you know, there's so much to like that even old Doug's got to decide what's best. I mean, is it apple pie or cider trivia or, you know, maybe something about flannel sales? Because who doesn't love just snuggling up into some flannel sheets and inside your camper van there? And oh, that's something good. But, you know, it could even be like, you know, candy corn or Halloween if you wanted to go obvious, but that's just not me. As much as I am the biggest fan of all of those things, Watch me present now to you the holy grail of fall trivia. Doesn't get any better than this, folks. I'm telling you right now. Settle in. I hope you're sitting down because this one's a doozy. What is the name of the immensely popular fall drink that alone netted Starbucks $110 million in 2018? I'll have your answer right after. You're not going to get it. You just, you just, like, don't even try. Don't spend time. Just pay attention to whatever... Joe says next and, and then just come back and I'll, I'll get you your answer in a minute because it's impossible. You're not going to get this. We had a live event with uh, Cameron Huddleston last week and Cameron came to Detroit. It was so fun, by the way, having her here. And even though her topic, mom and dad, we need to talk is about taking care of your aging parents and talking to them about money and strategies to do that. By the way, she was on the show a few weeks ago. You can go listen to her. The thing that a lot of the TV stations that we took her to, she was on two TV stations and a radio station. And one thing we talked about at the event, General Motors had just gone on strike. We talked a lot about the importance of having a side hustle. And I think more and more people, more and more smart people are looking at how do I diversify my income streams? Because when you work for somebody else, OG, you just don't know. Sometimes it's not completely in your control of whether you're getting paid today or out on the picket line or just out. So if you're somebody who's either started a business or looking at starting a business, I know that what you don't dream about is all those admin tasks, (laughs) like drafting proposals and contracts and tracking down payments. Doesn't that sound like fun? If that's not part of your vision, you need HoneyBook. HoneyBook's an online business management tool that organizes your client communications, bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place. You and I both have coaches who have taught us this, right? Don't waste a lot of time, OG. Don't waste a lot of time on that stuff. Focus on your unique talent. That's right. HoneyBook makes it simple 
to run your business better. Professional templates, e-signatures, and built-in automation keeps everything on track and makes you look good. They can even consolidate services you already use like QuickBooks, Google Suite, Excel, MailChimp, Gmail. It's, by the way, the number one choice for client business management for freelancers and business owners. You can save time and do more of that unique talent, the thing that actually makes you money with HoneyBook. Right now, HoneyBook's offering Stacking Benjamin's stackers 50% off when you visit HoneyBook.com slash SB. Payments flexible and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. You know how they sometimes get you with, hey, if you pay annually, give you a break. Whether you do it monthly or annually, you're going to get 50% off. Head to HoneyBook.com slash SB for 50% off your first year. That's HoneyBook.com slash SB. Welcome back, trivia fans. Let me reintroduce myself. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Apparently, there's been some contention between Joe and OG about today's... I mean, let's be honest. There's contention about everything between Joe and OG. But this question seemed to have sparked a little bit more than your average burr under the saddle friction between the two of them. So let's just say there are three of us down here in the basement, and one of us feels just a tiny bit strongly about this Starbucks drink. Here was the basement dividing question one more time. What is the name of the immensely popular fall drink that alone netted Starbucks 110 million bucks last uh, last year, you know, back in 2018. So if you said the pumpkin spice latte, you'd be correct. Pumpkin spice is only getting more popular with each passing year. So that's either great news or bad news, depending on which side of the basement you're on. Personally, well, you know, I'm, I'm about to run out because I can hear the guys both getting fired up now. So I'm just going to go get me some pumpkin spice latte while they figure things out. Peace out, Girl Scouts. Uh, I think the answer is tall, light roast coffee. That's pretty much the answer to every what coffee should you order you know ex- question. You know exactly that Doug was correct. We would also accept venti dark roast. And when they point and go, which one of these, you just say, I, I don't care. Like whichever one is fuller. I don't know where the hatred comes from. It's a phenomenal drink. And it's, every fall it's I look hatred, forward to it's it. It's just like 18,000 calories. And wonderful. It's like seven meals packed into one drink. Who needs to put on an extra 30 pounds for the winter? I can't figure out why. No, no, no. You know, 72 pumpkin spice lattes and uh, a couple of peppermint mochas. I get it with skim. I get it with skim. Okay. It's only five meals when you get it with skim. Stuff is stuff. The only acceptable answer at any coffee shop is small, medium or large black coffee. Those are your two. That's the only thing you can do. That's we'd also accept Americano with an extra shot. Oh, just because, just because you like it. I like how you've got this thing for the one drink that you like, but Americano is like coffee in hot water. Well, whatever. It's like, it's really potent coffee with just more hot water. Pumpkin spice is just coffee with love poured in. That's it. I see. That's the recipe right there. (laughs) Sure. Whole helping of love. (laughs) Big thanks. Think of that next time that your barista (laughs) is making it. Just go, he or she just poured all of his or her love right into my coffee cup. And take a big long drink.
Big thanks to Paul Ollinger for hanging out with us today. Oh, I got to get I through this. tastes so delicious. Uh, <laughs> hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. That got creepy in a hurry. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first, OG. No, don't. I think uh, we've established that black coffee is acceptable. And pumpkin spice. Those are the two things you value most. Black coffee. You can have a spice donut. I'll give you a spice oh. donut with a plain coffee. Mm. But and, you cannot mix those two things. And that's the thing that I missed in Texas that I have now again. You know where we just went? The Franklin Cider Mill. We just went you know to the what would be amazing mill. is if, like, as a really good friend, there was, like, a UPS box of fresh cider and donuts sent to Texas. It would just be, like, a thing that somebody would do for a really good friend that doesn't have access to that. Look at the time. It's humble. It's humble. We, we got a show to do here. It's actually your loved ones and your time that you're making time for. So there you go. It's why they've made buying quality term life insurance. If, if you missed, by the way, who they is, because we took so long on donuts, it's Haven Life. Uh, that's why they made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get your free quote. Simple application. It's all online. Instant coverage decision. Price is affordable. I still, when I hear this other company on XM, and I hear it all the time, go, hey, we're doing something different than everybody else. We put our application online. I'm like, and you got here when? How long has Haven Life sponsored the show? And they've been doing it. I don't know. I think Haven Life was there first. But here's who's first on our lifeline, first and last today. It's our new friend Maddox. Say hi, Maddox. Hey, Joe and OG. My name is Maddox. I'm a junior in college, which is good because I still haven't learned a single thing in the last two years of listening to the show. So I got a full ride plus scholarship, which is where I get more money back from the school than my total cost of attendance. On top of that, I work full time in the summers and part time during the school year on campus. My on campus job is able to cover most of my living expenses, so I've been saving and investing the difference. So far, I've built up an emergency fund with more than six months worth of expenses. I have a Roth IRA that will be fully funded by the end of the year and a taxable brokerage that I've been investing in the excess. My investments in those are a total stock market index fund, international index fund, and some individual equities that I researched and chose. I'd love to use more of the money I've been stockpiling to get started in real estate with the house hack, but I know that's a big commitment. So two questions. One, should I keep investing in my Roth and brokerage, get started in real estate, or do something else? Two, what other money advice do you have for college students? You know, don't worry about answering. Just ask Doug if I can borrow the El Camino for the weekend and give me a call when mom has dessert rate. <laughs> P.S. Let Gertrude down in Excel. <laughs> Gertrude's just sending you a code, Max, so you can, uh, you can take it however you want. But how about that? He's a junior in college, and the dude has a full-ride scholarship and a job, and he's making money by going to college. Mm -hmm. Here's what I would do, man. I, awesome. I would just stay in college. I mean, if you're... Yeah. <laughs> like, is there a master's program you could take? <laughs> right. PhD? Keep right. doing it, man. Yeah, do that forever. He's a full-time college student because it pays so well. It's financially independent. You don't hear that often. Let's start off with for him. So real estate, keep investing in his Roth and his brokerage account. Do something else. I kind of like to keep investing in the Roth and the brokerage account. There's a lot of stuff that can happen between being 20 and being 30. You don't know where you're going to work. You don't know where you're going to live. You don't know relationships you'll be in, family situation, all that sort of stuff. I kind of feel like it's probably not the best time to be shopping for an apartment building or a duplex or something like that. 
plus if you keep on saving at the rate that you are, you might be able to just parlay that into just a cash purchase at some point in time because you're so far ahead of the game. So don't necessarily get bogged down in a real estate transaction right away. I was just reading an article from a um, CNBC about a pro football player who accumulates all of his game checks for the entire year and then cashes them all at the same time so that he can kind of be really methodical about budgeting for the next year. Wow. Which I love, by the way. I love that idea. And he was talking about how he was living in a hotel for his first two years of playing pro football. And everybody was razzing him about not having a house. So he finally rented a house. And the next week he got cut by the team. Oh. And so now he's got a rental property. Or not a property, but he's renting a property that he can't get out of for a year. And now he's getting traded to another team. And I kind of feel like this might be one of those situations where you might find the quote deal of a century, which it wouldn't be, by the way. And then all of a sudden you're going to get, you know, you live in Cleveland, you're going to get a job in Seattle, and then you got to deal with how in the hell you're going to manage this thing from a million miles away. And it's not really concentrated. I think, you know, if you kind of go down the path of real estate, like take Paula, for example, she's got different properties in different places now. But when she started, she started with many properties all kind of in the same area that she could handle, you know, made it efficient. So just OG, take a breath on that. OG, by the way, is talking to our Friday about our Friday contributor, Paula Pant, who also has a site called Afford Anything. And Paula does a bunch of real estate, has a real estate investing course. I'm with you. This is such a time of change. I mean, just case in point, my kids are 24. My son went from Austin, Texas to Seattle. My daughter went from Fayetteville Arkansas to Kansas City to Kirishiki, Japan. So you don't know, you don't know. Imagine trying to do your rental empire from Japan and it's in Maryland or something. Yeah. And Uh, it's totally doable, but you want to go into it knowing that that's already the case. Yes. I also like like, people who are, who, who live overseas that have properties. Absolutely. You know, in the United States, but they did that. They, they knowingly did that. You know, and, so and and I do like Maddox. I do like the idea of starting real estate early, though. I do like starting it early because you're going to make mistakes no matter what you do. So if you're really interested in that, I like pushing the button a little early. But I think in in college is uh, is difficult. You know, when when he talks about advice for college students, my best advice for a college student is to keep getting your learning on. And what I mean by that is you're taking all these classes at the same time, you know, he's listening to the Stacking Benjamin show. He's hearing about people like Paul who have other podcasts. He's hearing about other people. We've already curated uh, authors that we like as guests who are on the show. But I would OG, I'd be reading. I'd gain knowledge. I'd continue investing and trying different investing approaches because compared to the amount of money you're going to have when you're 40, your nest egg is so much smaller now. And even though it's all the money you have, when you look back on it, it's much better to mess up with small amounts of money than with the big amounts of money you're going to have later. Right. Yep. So I would, I would just keep the knowledge tunnel moving. So nice, nice work. Congratulations. Um, And Gertrude is going to send you a code and you can pick out whatever size you want. Thanks for the question, Max. If you've got a question for the show, head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail, and that'll get you on the Haven Lifeline. And um, we can congratulate you on the great job that you're doing. 
All right, that's going to do it for today. Two quick pieces of housekeeping. Thanks for everybody who's left a review of this show. And actually, it's funny. Mom has this one on the fridge right now. It's a five-star reviews at Apple Podcasts that says, how's that for a transition, huh? I guess this show's okay overall, but one particular feature stands out over the rest. When Joe inserts some kind of awkward segue, awkward, come on, to a live read and then says to OG or the Friday panel, hey, how's that for a transition, huh? Classic. I can't get enough of it. Also, finance or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So, so good. You made mom, you made mom laugh and OG laugh, which is good. Thanks for that. Also, last, but definitely not least, if you're somebody that needs better financial help in your corner, you're looking at this new fall season upon us, and you're like, you know what? I think I could do better. OG and his team are taking clients. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG to get on their schedule, and they will take it from there with you. All right. That's going to do it for today. Speaking of take it from here, Doug, you've got it from here. What should we have learned on today's show? Yeah, sure thing, Joe. I got this. But hey, while I'm telling everybody what they should have learned, you want to go attend to that pumpkin spice latte spill on your Ugg boots. Because if you leave that on there, on that fine suede, it'll stain forever. So just go get your Ugg boots taken care of. First, take some advice from Paul Olinger. While planning for your future is serious business, having a conversation about money doesn't have to be boring. Second, while you won't become a millionaire overnight, by sticking to sound investment strategies and saving your cash, you'll be able to retire too. And maybe join the list of people with a million dollars or more in their 401k or IRA. But the big takeaway? Watch how much pumpkin spice lattes you consume. One might be all right, but let's just say the number three and Joe's mom mixed together isn't a great match. Somebody's dancing with the vacuum upstairs again special thanks to paul olinger for stopping by the basement you can find his podcast crazy money wherever you're listening to us here and you can find his tour schedule at his website paulolinger.com or you know through our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com this show was created by joe salcihai produced by richie rutter reese and engineered by the amazing steve stewart Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I swear the worst part about coming over to Joe's mom's house is having to put on pants. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Margie down at the Sizzler just told me I made something of a Freudian slip. When I asked her what that was, she said it's when you say one thing, but you really mean your mother.
couple things, few things happened on my trip. Oh, you were on a trip recently? That were I went to the Canadian Rockies. Oh, okay. Different <clears throat> than Bavaria. But okay. I can already hear long-term listeners go, oh no, here comes the next 16 weeks of, here's what happened on my trip to the Canadian Rockies. But we actually flew into Montana. On the first day, we went to Whitefish. And thanks to our friend Sarah, she found this great place called Casey's. And it's a, it was a rooftop bar where you could sit. And we've got this clear blue sky, mountains all around us. Fantastic place. And we also had our friends, Karen, Damon, Stephen, and of course, Benjamin. You got to have a Benjamin. If you're stacking, you got to have a Benjamin right. at the meetup. So we had, we had a great time just hanging out, Cheryl and I, with the Montana crew. So thanks to, to Sarah for putting that together. Thanks to Karen, Damon, Stephen, and Benjamin for hanging out with us. It's always interesting when you meet people. These are people that if we live closer, you'd hang out with in real life, wherever yeah. we go, isn't it? I've noticed that. Yep. Yet whenever we have a meetup, just some, some fun people in our community. But I found out later on, we were in Banff and you know, they have that Fairmont hotel that looks kind of like a big chateau, like a big castle mm -hmm. on their golf course. The elk really like the freshly mowed grass. And so the best place to find elk was on their golf course. So we went there right around dusk and there was a male elk with this huge rack, just huge beautiful elk and a whole herd of females. And uh, the woman that was leading us around told us that this is mating season. And I'm fairly certain this is how it happens in the OG household too. Oh boy. The male elk to turn on the female covers itself in its own urine. Not sure how that happens, but I'm sure OG, this is, you've probably found a way too. And oh then boy. they come up to the women and we actually heard this noise like this, you know, elk, they're so huge. And you'd think they'd make this noise, you know, this really guttural kind of just because they're so, so big, but they make this noise. And it was while we first heard it because the, the male opens up his mouth as he's running toward the women trying to score a date covered in his own urine and goes, it's a really high-pitched, weird-sounding thing. And when he opened up his mouth, Cheryl and I are both like, really, that's it? So that's what you're going with. You cover yourself in urine, and then you go, and I thought, huh. that's, that's the mating season at the OG household right there. Thank you for that. Don't know how I got to be the uh... father of three butt of all the jokes on your trip, but I can't wait for you to go on vacation next week. Where are you headed? <laughs> oh, but we seriously did see an elk. I'll put the, I'll put a photo up in the basement Facebook group. They were amazing, but unfortunately much like OG also, uh, this elk, the ladies were having none of it. All right. That's a good place to stop right there. It's actually funny because, because she, 
because Cheryl and I, you know, you're on these hikes and they're like eight or 10 miles. You start joking about stuff. And I'm like, hey, do you think that's what it would take? And she's like, what? You know, if I like cover, my, cover myself. So you, so you went behind a rock and peed all over yourself, started screeching. We could, we're, there was no chance we we're going to see animals because we're laughing so damn hard. And so I'm like, what if I'm standing next to the bed going, Rrr! she's like, Joe, what the f are you doing? You, you, <laughs> you know, it, didn't you? you it know, uh, no, it didn't work. No. <laughs> Cause you, could what you does that smell? Like I peed on myself, obviously. Duh. <laughs> I heard it. You see. You see that guy on the golf course, all those ladies around him. If it works for elk, why wouldn't it work for me? Cheryl's like, yeah, I think we have to talk. Huh. And I think you need a shower. Hey, is, is, is this thing still on, dude? Oh, crap. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. 